Thank you, Dan, and choir and instrumentalists for beautiful worship music this morning. Turn your Bibles. We're in our sermon series, our second sermon from the minor prophet Amos. They're called minor prophets not because they're unimportant, but because of the brevity of their books in the Bible. We're looking at in just a moment various passages, but our first one will be in chapter 4. In verse 1. So if you turn to Amos chapter 4, those minor prophets are right before the New Testament. So you can kind of find Matthew and go back to the left if you're having trouble finding that little book, Amos. John and Roberta were touring their new home. It was a house that Roberta had paid for with her own funds, her own money, a, a fact of which she constantly reminded John and each room of the house, she would say to her husband, John, if it were not for my money, we would not be here. John didn't say a word. That afternoon, a truck arrived with all sorts of beautiful brand new furniture. Every room was beautifully appointed and magnificently decorated. So they went back through the rooms of this enormous house. And again, Roberta reminded John, John, if it were not for my money, now this beautiful furniture would be here. Again, John was silent. Uh, later in the afternoon, a truck arrived with all the computer and AV equipment, and a beautiful piece of furniture was housing all this magnificent AV equipment. And, well, Roberta had bought all that, of course, with her own money. And when it was in place, Roberta said to John, John, if it were not for my money, all these electronics, all this computer system, it would not be here. Well, finally, John, who had been silent all day long, finally spoke, and he said, Honey, I don't want to make you feel bad, but if it weren't for your money, I wouldn't be here either. <laughs> tis only funny because tis true. This morning, we continue our sermon series from the minor prophet Amos. We come to sermon number two, Judgment on Injustice. We're going to look at various passages throughout this minor prophet that shows how the wealthy, the well-to-do in ancient Israel were abusing the poor and the needy and the common worker. Now, it's not an easy sermon for me to preach because it's going to step on my toes, first of all, and secondly, because it's going to step on your toes. And, well, first of all, I want you to know what I'm not trying to do today. I'm not trying to play partisan politics. I'm not telling you how to vote. It's none of my business how you vote. I'm not saying what role, if any, the government should have in any of this problem. But I am telling you how the people of God ought to act in accordance with the Word of God. The first thing we see in the book of Amos about injustice is this. There's a great disparity between the level of living of the rich and the level of the living of the poor. There's a great disparity in the level of living of the rich and the poor. Well, look at Amos 4.1. Hear this, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring now that we may drink. Now, there are preachers who have courage, and there are preachers who are cowards. Well, Amos was a preacher of courage. 
If you start out your sermon calling all the ladies cows, you are a guy with great courage. Listen to me, you cows of Bashan, he says. Wow, really? He looks to the affluent women of Samaria, the capital city of ancient Israel. Remember, we're in the 8th century B.C., around 70, 60 B.C., and it's the time of Jeroboam II in the northern tribes, and the wealthy have confused their wealth with prosperity from God. The reality is, we learn there wasn't anything wrong with being wealthy. The problem was they were making their wealth by cheating and pushing down the poor. The women were living in opulence. This was the indulgent, wealthy, upper class. Bashan was that fertile plain by the mountain range, both sides of the Yarmouk River. The region was known for the most lush pasture, and thus the most lush cows resulted from the good grass. And so he's calling the ladies, you fat cows of Bashan, you're getting the best grass, and you're gaining your weight by gouging the poor. Notice what he says. They oppress the poor. They crush down the needy. They commanded their husbands, bring me more, bring me more. Their need for more and more to satisfy their materialistic thirst. The husbands, in order to bring these wives, these commanding wives more, were exploiting the poor more and more to keep their well-to-do wives healthy, wealthy, and content. The word bring is an imperative command. The women are saying, get me more, get me more. They were callous of heart. There was a great disparity in Amos' day in the ancient Israel, the northern kingdom, between the haves and the have-nots. Skip over to chapter 6 and verse 4. Trevor read a portion of this a moment ago. Those who recline on beds of ivory and sprawl on their couches, they eat lambs from the flock, calves in the midst of the stall, who improvise to the sound of the harp. And like David, they've composed songs for themselves who drink wine from sacrificial bowls. They anoint themselves with the finest oils, yet they have not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. These citizens who were cheating the poor were sleeping in beds of ivory, the very best beds. And of course, in that day, the poor wouldn't even have a bed. At best, they might have a little mat to put on the ground. Well, these Opulent folks had beds made of ivory. And notice, they sprawl on their couches. That's a pejorative term. It has the image of drunkenness and laziness and, well, just hanging all over the couches. They're sprawling on their couches. They have beds of ivory. They eat the best food. Ordinary citizens in that day would eat meat maybe two or three times a year during a festival. But notice, these folks were getting the fattened calves. They were eating them right in the middle of the fattening pen. That's how much they desired the meat. They lounged around eating and drinking and making up songs. In fact, notice the allusion to David. You've become little kings. You've become little Davids. You strum away, Amos says, on your harps, and you enjoy yourselves not only with entertainment, but with your drunkenness, verse 6. They had the finest lotions, the finest oils. Now, whether these were medicinal or cosmetic or cultic for worship, whatever the anointing, they had the very, very best. 
Israel, Joseph, was about to break apart as a nation, and yet the rich could not see their enemy approaching because they were so focused on the pleasures of life at the expense of the poor. For Amos, nothing could be worse, but to them, nothing could be better. Disparity in that day. Do we have disparity in our day, let's say, in Dallas? Mark Cuban is the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, is a half, to be sure, iconoclastic dot-com billionaire. Cuban built a house of ivory, 24,000 square feet, a Dallas mansion. Cuban says, and I quote a Sports Illustrated column, he said, let's suppose with my billions, let's suppose I make moronic moves and I lose 100 million on the stock market. Gee, he says, and I quote directly, what does that leave me? What a sense of arrogance. I can lose $100 million. It's no big deal to me, Cuban says, because I still have billions in the bank. Yes, there's disparity in ancient Israel, and there's disparity in our own day between the haves and the have-nots. According to Forbes magazine, in fact, I noticed in yesterday's newspaper, there was an article, if you saw it in Saturday's newspaper in the Emerald Globe News, that verified everything I'm about to tell you from my own research this week. The Forbes magazine CEO pay is now 361 times the average worker's pay. Let me say that again. The CEO of a Fortune 5 company Fortune 500 company now makes an average of 361 times the pay of the average worker. Well, in the 1950s, that multiple was 20 times. We've gone from the CEO making 20 times more than the average worker to making 361 times the average worker. The average CEO pay in 2017 in the Fortune 500 companies was $14 million dollars. Per year, and there were some of those companies where the CEO made a thousand times, not the 20 times of the 1950s, but a thousand times greater pay than his or her average employee. Folks, I know a free economy is the greatest economy on earth. I fully believe that. But we have a problem when the general is making 361 times more than his soldiers. Something has gone terribly, terribly wrong in our value system. Somewhere along these lines, these companies have elected boards, members who have lost the ability to make common sense judgments about fairness and disparity. And there seems to be no end in sight. Speaking of comp losing common sense, what about coaches escalating pay? I'm going to be in trouble with everybody before the sermon is over. What about coaches escalating pay? Now, I'm going to use this school because, well, it's been in the newspaper a lot, and the university trustees recently approved the largest collegiate athletic contract ever written in the history of humanity. Yes, uh, uh, of course, I'm talking about Clemson University. I grew up 20-minute drive from Clemson University. Now, before the Clemson fans get mad at me, I have Clemson paraphernalia. My brother graduated from Clemson. My niece was elected about a month ago as the student body president of Clemson University. So I'm not against Clemson. My sister went to the University of South Carolina. I pulled for both of the state teams from my home state. 
But Dabo Sweeney just signed a 10-year, $92 million contract, the biggest collegiate contract in athletics ever signed. Where does all this stop? Where, where does it end? There's obviously no end in sight, and the reality is I could take Clemson's name out, and I could put my favorite university's name in there or your favorite university's name in there. So it doesn't matter which university. If you're in a Power Five conference, you're all playing the same game. Whatever building you have to build to win, you build it. Whatever coach contract you have to sign to keep the coach, you sign it because we have lost any sense of reasonableness. That $92 million contract would put 1,000 poor students through Clemson University debt-free. 1,000 students could go to Clemson over that 10-year period if it was put into to scholarships. Well, there's a great disparity in ancient Israel's day, and there's a great disparity in our day. And the reality is, in a socialist system or a communist system, the disparity is even, even greater. And I realize that, of course. The second thing I want to say this morning from Amos is, the ancient Israelites made their money at the expense of the poor. It wasn't just a disparity. It was the way they gained the disparity. Look at chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, because you impose heavy rent on the poor and extract, exact a tribute of grain from them, though you have built houses of well-hewn stone, you will not live with them. You have pleasant vineyards, yet you will not drink their wine. Look at verse 12. You turn aside the poor at the gate. Look at, skip forward to chapter 8, verse 4. Chapter 8, verse 4. Hear this, you who trample the needy, to do away with the humble of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over, so we may sell grain, and the Sabbath, that we may open the wheat market. They were cheating the poor to make their wealth. They were keeping the poor away from just judges, those who met at the gate. That's the way they were living their lives. In fact, notice there in chapter 8, he's saying, you can't wait for the Sabbath to be over for the wheat markets to open. A pastor told me once that he, after a service, he was, they were picking up the bulletins in the church and kind of cleaning up and picking up before the next service. And on one bulletin, during the sermon, during the service and the music, one of the business folks had written out a business plan for a new company he was wanting to start. So all during the hour of worship, instead of worshiping, he was working on his business plan. He had it down, you know, all the, the P's of marketing, had every one of them written down, jotted down, had his action plans, all the points down there. And the pastor thought he could not stop for one hour focusing on the markets to focus on the Word of God. In verse 5 there in chapter 8, notice they're cheating with dishonest scales. They're not even selling fair amounts of grain to the poor. In verse 6, they're willing to sell the needy for the cheap price of a pair of sandals. They were inflicting harsh and unjust treatment on the unprotected members of society. They were skipping the measure. They were boosting the price. They were using dishonest scales. These are hard questions today that we too must ask ourselves. There's a third thing I want you to see. A false sense of security existed among the rich in ancient Israel. Turn back to chapter 3 and verse 9. A false sense of security 
existed among the rich in ancient Israel. Look down, look down at verse 11. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an enemy, even one surrounding the land, will pull down your strength from you and your citadels will be looted. Those who have been looting now will be looted. Notice he says in verse 12, you're going to be like the lamb in the lion's mouth. Nothing but bits and pieces left. Maybe a leg or a piece of an ear. You will be consumed. Look at verse 15. I'll also smite the winter house together with the summer house. The houses of ivory will also perish. The great houses will come to an end, declares the Lord. There's a false sense of security. You're going to be like the lamb that's devoured by the lion, you who are devouring the poor. There may be a, a, a piece of the lamb's ear or maybe a leg bone left, but there won't be much left. Skip over to chapter 4, verse 2. The Lord has sworn, sworn by his holiness. Now, I like that. You know, when you swear, you swear by someone or something greater than yourself. When we swear, we, we shouldn't. But when we do, we, we tend to go towards God's name because you swear by the most powerful thing you can imagine. When God swears, he has to swear by his own name because there is nothing greater. The Lord has sworn by his own holiness. Behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. He says there's going to be holes in the security wall. The enemies are going to come and attack Israel for her sins. It's not a pretty picture. The women, these cows of Bashan who had been living in opulence, you will be corpses. You will be hooked by the meat hook. You will be taken out of the city on a meat hook like a corpse, like a piece of meat. Those who had treated the poor so poorly would now find themselves on the wrong end of God's judgment. Mark Cuban of the Dallas Mavericks owner said in that same interview in Sports Illustrated, if you have money, you don't have to ask permission for anything. Wow. If you have money, you don't have to ask permission for anything. He said his money gives him freedom. He can buy whatever he wants, do whatever he wants, anytime. If you have money, you don't have to ask permission for anything. A direct quote. Well, Amos has some news for us. The moment that we ourselves think that we have arrived, when we think that we have made it because of our own wit and wisdom, we think we've gotten where we are because of who we are, we realize that God might have a say. And the assurance and the security can vanish as quickly as it came. There's a fourth thing I want to say this morning. That God's people are the poor people. That God's people are the poor people. I know that's a bold statement. But as you look through the minor prophets over and over again, you notice that God has a special love relationship, a covenant with those who are poor it is the downtrodden who are mentioned. It is the abused. It is the widow. It is the orphan who are mentioned time and time again. In fact, when God chooses, perhaps he chooses a maiden by the name of Mary and a poor carpenter to be mom and dad for his very son. In fact, Jesus said it is hard for those of us. I'm including myself and everybody in this room. Jesus says it's hard for us who are the haves 
Well, it's hard for us to make it into the kingdom of God as hard as it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle because we feel self-sufficient and as if we own all that we have and we forget that it is God who has blessed us. In Luke 6.20, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. When John the Baptist says, Are you really the Messiah? Jesus says, You tell uh, Jesus says, you tell John this is the sign. The poor have the gospel preached to them. It should change our lives, a book like Amos. What difference does it make for us? Some of you who own companies, some of you who, who serve on the boards of big companies, when the team wins, does the bonus trickle all the way down to all the employees, to every member of the team? Is it just the guy steering the ship who gets the bonus? Or do you remember those who are breaking their backs in the belly of the ship, pulling the oars? If we learn anything from the book of Amos this morning, is that all people matter. All people matter. From the president of the company to the custodian of the company, everyone matters. I've made it a goal in my life. I'm trying to do better to realize that everybody matters. And I challenge you to make that a goal of your life too. One lady remembers that during her month at nursing school, the professor gave a pop quiz the lady said she was a conscientious student. She was making it through all the quiz with no problem. And, well, she got to the end. The last question on the pop quiz was, what is the first name of the lady who cleans the school? What is the first name of the lady who cleans the school? Is this a joke? Why would they ask a question like that? That wasn't in our chapters. And so before the class was dismissed, one of the students had was brave enough to raise a hand and say, now that one's not going to count, is it? Absolutely, said the professor. In your careers, you will meet a lot of people, and all are significant. They deserve your attention and your care. Even if all you do is smile and say hello, I've never forgotten that lesson, writes the nursing student, and I learned that her name was Dorothy. I learned that her name was Dorothy. Don't forget Dorothy, Amos is telling ancient Israel. Here's a fourth and a final thing I want you to see, and that is there's a difference between talking the talk and walking the walk. I got a, a, a kick out of a confession by a pastor by the name of Mark Batterson. He said that when he was just a kid and the church would have capital fund raising capital fund campaign he would take out one of those slips he was just a kid and he would put down he's gonna give a million or two million dollars what well, I mean for making it out go ahead and make it out for 10 million right he'd make it out for 10 million dollars and he would make up the name of a fake philanthropist uh as a kid he just put up some name and put it in there and he'd put it in the offering plate and well the, the church realized that these fake philanthropists were never actually making any donations and no matter what the name was or however extravagant the millions of dollars on the envelope they realized that all of it looked like little Mark Batterson's writing when they received the the commitment card and well you see it's always easier to make a financial commitment for someone else rather than to make that commitment yourself it's always easier to make a financial commitment for somebody else 
that is to make it for yourself. I got a chuckle. Perhaps you saw the recent reporting on the 2020 presidential candidates and their contributions to charity. The reality is that those running for president gave well below the average in their charitable contributions as reflected in their 2018 income tax deductions. In fact, there was one leading presidential candidate who gave 0.31% of his income to charity. Let me translate that in math for you. For every dollar he made, he gave less than a third of a penny. For every dollar he made, he himself gave less than a third of a penny of his income. Candidates with huge incomes, with a lot of talk about taking care of the poor, who are actually, when we examine their own books, doing nothing with their own paychecks. Amos is not asking the Israelites what they're doing with someone else's income. He's asking them what they're doing with their own income. Are they looking after the least of these? Are they bringing the whole tithe in the t storehouse, the place of worship, to empower the people of God to do much good? I'm not criticizing capitalism today, nor am I suggesting a particular candidate. What I am saying is this. The problem resides not in a system but within ourselves, myself included. It is a call for the people of God to open their hands and their hearts together. You are so generous as a church, and I am so proud of how you give. This morning on our West parking lot, there were four Greyhound buses of nearly 200 students who went to camp in Missouri, students from the 7th to the 12th grades, and because you were so generous in giving and in scholarships, we can say to every student who comes to our student ministry, you can go to camp. Every single student this year who wanted to go, regardless of income, was able to go because of you. We decided a long time ago we're not going to be a church between the haves and the have-nots. If one child has an opportunity, every child will have the same opportunity. Other ministries like English as a second language, I just jotted these down this week, and I, I could think of a different ministry for everyone I mentioned. If you move to Amarillo and you don't know the English language, we will pick you up in a van and give you free transportation and sit down with you and tutor you in English so that you can mainstream into our culture. If you're someone who needs job skills, knows how, needs to know how to write a resume or turn on a computer or, or word processing skills, and our Christian men and women's job corps will assign you a mentor and, and work with you. If you're in Amarillo and you're hungry, we have our Perkins Center, which is open every week to give away food to those who are hungry or to clothe those who are naked. We have Snack Pack, where we provide students in the Emerald School District with snacks to prevent hunger on the weekend. We have Kids Cafe at one particular elementary where we serve after-school meals. If you're a foster child, we'll show up and make sure you have a bed and diapers. Your foster parents are ready to take care of you. If you're unborn, we will partner with others to 
Try to get your mother to choose life and not death. If you're homeless, we partner with others to make sure you have a warm place to sleep tonight. If you're a child and you need school supplies, we will buy those school supplies. If you're a child and you need clothes, uh, you brought the blue bags back last week. We, in a van with a, a partner in ministry, will go to the school and make sure students have clothes that they will not be shamed at school. If you're a student and you need a Christmas gift at Christmas, the tree will be up and you will buy five or six hundred Christmas gifts for children who are poor. If you are in prison, we will be there this week to encourage you and hold your hand and pray for you. And you hear Robbie get up and talk about cars every week. We, I thought we'd given away about 16. We've given away 60-something cars. That's a new ministry where you start. If you have a car and, and don't trade it in for pennies on the dollar, give it to us and we'll give it to those students that we scholarship to camp and they will have a car by which to do life. I'm not fussing. You are tremendously generous, and you are a church that will not let there be a disparity between the haves and the have-nots, and I am grateful. But we must remind ourselves that we must always be that kind of church, that kind of people, and we can only do that when you give and tithe and empower us to be that kind of church. Let's pray together. Father, this is not a sermon for someone else. This is a sermon for me. It's not about what I do with someone else's income and wealth. It's about what I do with mine. What do my records reflect? Have I brought the whole tithe to the storehouse to empower the people of God to take care of the poor? Have I been faithful? Have I acknowledged that my wealth is a gift from you? It's not my own doing. May we all hear the words of Amos. We all of us, men and women alike, who are the cows on the good pasture. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.